Welcome to the Millennial Way. Real millennials, real success. This is how they did it. Tailoring the next generation of leaders. I'm proud to be your host, Chase Coleman. Y'all, what is up? I'm your host, Chase Coleman, and welcome back on another lovely Winning Wednesday to the Millennial Way podcast. And today we have another fantastic roundtable with our Don't Talk About It, Be About It special with some amazing leaders. Thanks for tuning guys, in. Guys, I'm, I'm really excited about If you about like the show, one. make Last sure to leave week, us a review. Last week, we heard from some really great Go ahead and check us out on Twitter and Instagram and, I mean, frankly, at underscore Millennial Way. And, this and week, check we're out our website at itsmillennialtalk.com where there's new blog posts and updates. But before I get into it, I just want to let you guys know that one, I am tired. This I just is got back the Millennial Way, tailoring the next generation. One half leaders. hour flight from Atlanta to Seattle, but honestly, it was great being home. I got to see see my family. I was home for shoot twelve days, which is the longest I've been home since I graduated college. And to be honest with you guys, I mean, it's always a great reset being able to go back home, sleep in my own bed, like the the bed that I grew up in. Um, my parents still live in the same house that I grew up in, so it's pretty pretty lucky for me because I get to go home and kind of reminisce a little bit, which is always fun, but just hanging out with my parents. And I think the older we get, the better the conversations we have with our parents. And it's always fun to be able to just have those conversations and being able to re- reconnect with old friends who I haven't seen in years, old basketball teammates, my boys, Shannon and my boy, Evan Coleman. I mean, you guys heard from Evan Coleman on this season, my boy, Shannon's playing over in Europe and I haven't seen him since shoot. I mean, it's, it's been since at least three or four years. So it's been awesome just being able to reconnect with those guys. And, um, Second, I wanted to touch upon just a little bit on flying during this whole COVID period because I'm just going to be really honest with you guys. I felt very safe flying. Now, if you watch my Instagram stories, I'm a little bit of a clown because I like to call out the Karens and the Scots who take their masks off and don't wear masks and don't necessarily abide by rules because I'll be honest with you guys, I think it's very easy to just wear a mask. I mean, when you wear one for five hours on a plane, does it suck? Yes, it absolutely sucks. But if it's mandatory, just wear the damn mask. But anyways, I felt really safe. I flew Delta and I typically fly Delta. I'm an Atlanta boy. They hook it up. I love flying Delta and I didn't have anybody sitting near me. I mean, legitimately now on the flight to Atlanta from Seattle, it was like every other seat was filled. So we always had somebody or nobody um, was sitting directly next to you. And then when I was flying back, I was on one of those international planes where it's like, two seats on on the window, three in the middle, and then another two on the other window. And guys, it was, I, I could have stretched out. It was amazing. And I, you guys know me, I'm an extrovert. I'm always trying to strike up conversation. So I had to, had to talk with the flight attendant. She was telling me some pretty funny stories, but I could go down a deep rant for that. And that's not what we're here for. Let's get into this special because this is a very special one that we have today. And gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me again this morning. I am very, very excited. I'm very fortunate to have the both of you guys here with me today. Um, and as I, as I mentioned before, many companies have issued these statements on how they stand with Black Lives Matter movement and that they will, you know, quote unquote, do everything within their power to combat racial injustice within the United States. Now, some may be skeptical and see it as a pure PR play, um, and it I mean, to be honest with you guys, it just seems like right now in this current moment in time, a lot of the people of the United States will be holding a lot of companies accountable for this. Um, 
So I truly believe that these companies are a little bit under a microscope and at least for the time being. So with that being said, um, I want to kind of flip this over to you guys and thinking about being a minority and a black man or a black woman in a company, it means you typically have to put down like these, your blackness, right? Oh, Simone is here. We're going to, okay, I'm sorry. We're going to start over. I was only a minute into it. (laughs) (laughs) Simone. We live in an imperfect world. We do. We do. Good morning, Simone. How are you? Good morning, Simone. Good morning. This is Kim. I'm in Atlanta. Good to have you. Oh, okay. And this is Joe. This is Joe. I'm in D.C. Right. Um, so, Simone, real quickly, I just I told these guys um, that today's conversation is meant to be exactly what it is, a conversation. Um, and the objective of these conversations and roundtables are to essentially just be like conversation starters and thought starters for people. Um, I don't think that we can necessarily solve all of the injustices and the systemic racism that we see going on, as we know that there's many, many layers to it. But the one thing that I do think that we could do is at least help others get the conversation going so that way they could start being actionable based off of what they're hearing and what they're doing. Um, so, yeah, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get us going. I'm just going to give a quick like blip of like our objective for today, and then I'll get started on the questions and I'm going to start by calling on you guys. So I'll go Joe, Simone, Kim, um, and then we'll just kind of round table it that way. All right. So y'all, as we know, many companies have issued statements on how they said they stand with the black lives matter movement and that they will do quote unquote, everything that they can within their power to help combat racial injustice within the United States. Now, while some might be skeptical and they could see it as a pure PR move, it truly seems as if the people of the United States will be holding these companies accountable for this. These companies might be under a microscope, and at least for the time being. So let's talk about it. So my first question for you guys is, you know, being a minority and being a black man and woman within a company typically means you have to put down like your blackness and putting getting yourself away from things that people might call you aggressive or confrontational or just way too blunt. Right. There's a lot of things that kind of come with being a black person within a corporate environment. So what does this mean to us? And I'm I'm curious to, to know from you guys, how can companies really embody people's differences? And Joe, we're gonna, we'll start off with with you on this one. Yeah. Good morning, Chase. Uh, you know, there's a lot to, to unpack in all of this. Right. But I, I would say that I personally, as a corporate COO, am watching uh, carefully what people say and how they say it. And I think being a, a black executive, people are watching what I say and do. Mm-hmm. And we have a moment in time, just as we tell, you know, a younger generation, they're de- demonstrating it through protesting and the things we've seen the last 30 days or so. We have to do it in the boardroom in different ways. It's going to be uncomfortable, but I do believe we've got this opening to educate people. And, you know, I talked to a a vice president that works on my team yesterday, who's middle-aged white man. He said, you know, he said, I, I now actually get it about driving while black. He's like, I didn't understand what DWB meant before. And he, and he even said, Hey, I'm not woke yet, <laughs> but I'm on the way. Right. He, he says, I'm reading, I'm, I'm educating myself. Right. He said, however, he says, a lot of people in my position won't take the time to educate themselves he said, so I actually need you to, to take that responsibility on, which was an interesting conversation. 
So my short answer is we got to take that that education responsibility. I love that. And I, I agree, right? Like I think it it falls on both sides of the spectrum, whether you're a white male, white woman, or a black male or, or black woman. Like at least from my perspective, I think that we could at least help people get to that that education standpoint. Simone, um, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so two parts. You said, you know, what ways have I had to like put away my blackness? And I mean, I had to start doing that, you know, since I was a little girl in private school and it goes all the way back to dress codes and your hairstyles. And, you know, I wanted to wear like puff puffs and we couldn't because we couldn't have barrettes. And so, I mean, so it goes far back that I've been completely conditioned and only, you know, the older I get, the more I realize like, wow, those were in place to really like stifle me. I believe um, whether or not people knew they were, um, I think now people realize, and there's a lot of pushback on, you know, things from childhood, like dress codes mm-hmm. um, and that's changed. But then, you know, as you get older, it's dress codes in the workforce. Um, man, I, I would say in, you know, I've worked in PR a really long time. So I think about things in such a different way that most people can't even imagine. And sometimes we did, I was at a PR firm and we handled crisis management. So I see totally things from this like very jaded perspective of like, oh no, people are just covering their behinds. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, so whether or not, you know, people need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable is what I say, because putting away my blackness is, you know, it's, the way uh, there's just so many examples. I'm like trying to think of one. Um, it's how I greet people. It's how, you know, you have certain coworkers that you're just, you know, closer with, you've known them for years and you feel more comfortable being yourself. But then there's some coworkers you're like, okay, no, I truly can't be myself around you because I've heard the things you say. I've heard your take on things. So I'm just going to like tuck this part of me away. But then, you know, you get around people that look like you and you're completely comfortable. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I, I think for companies, I think the major thing is that they just need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that means asking really hard questions. Um, I was reading an article and there was uh, a few companies who started removing name, race, gender, and address during the hiring process. And guess who got hired the most? It was black women. So it's like, like that. It's like, you know, when we have positions open, if you want to, you know, do, doing stuff like that instead of, you know, following the same rules of like, oh, we'll just get rid of gender or, okay, we still have name. We know Bob is probably a male, you know, so it's things like that. Um, but I think one of the greatest things that companies can do is definitely starts with the hiring process because it's like, who do you have in these places? Um, I've been, I've worked in many places where I was the only other. So, Black person, woman, um, and that goes back to hiring process. So for me, yeah, it definitely starts there. I, I really like that, Simone. You know, I was actually talking to, I've been helping this girl out. She's been trying to get a new job um, and she's originally from Sweden. And we were having a conversation last week and she told me, I don't understand why the United States is the only country that like even calls race a thing. Like in Sweden and all throughout most of Europe, when you're applying for a job, race is not even race and nationality don't even come up in the hiring process. Like it's not even a thing that you could check off on like a on like a questionnaire or something like that sort. So I've always found it. I said always for for the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking really deeply about that. It's like, so why do we even put that on the questionnaire if it's not even something that we if nobody else in the world really cares about it? Right. Right. Um, but Kim, would love to hear from you on 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 this topic too. 
Uh, first of all, Chase, thank you for having me. Joe and uh, Simone, good good to hear your voices this morning. And, and, and I love, I've already learned a lot just by hearing uh, both of you uh, sharing your, your thoughts and your opinions and uh, insights on, on this topic. So I, I think this is the beginning of something that could be uh, truly special. Chase, thank you for, for setting this up and allowing us to be a part of it. Um, of course. I, I grew up in a neighborhood that was uh, pretty mixed. Uh, we had we had blacks, we had whites, we had Asians, we had Hispanics. We had a we had a melting pot of a little bit of everybody in our neighborhood. Uh, I don't know if it was by design, but that's just how how we live. So we grew up a little different because my best friends were white or Hispanic or Asian. Uh, we that was just all we saw. Um, in our neighborhood. So I had a lot of different, uh, I, I saw a lot of different lifestyles and cultures uh, when I was young. So I didn't really see race because, you know, again, my best friend was white. My best friend was Asian. You know, we, we didn't see race until we went into their homes. Uh, when we went into their homes, we saw their actual culture, how they lived as a family. Um, you know, so Early on, I learned how Caucasians lived or, or thought, how Asians lived and how they thought, um, and so forth and so on. So we, we grew up probably different than, than most African-Americans because uh, we were in Los Angeles, and West L.A., in the lower middle class area, where, again, it was a melting pot of, of all different types of, of ethnicities and, and folks in those areas. Um, however, as I got older, I started to see the segregation and separation and realized that uh, certain things that I could say amongst my, my black friends would be shunned on or frowned upon if I was in a, a group of Caucasians or Asians. And I learned that pretty quickly uh, in my high school. Although it was a pretty well diverse high school, it was also segregated. A lot of the Asians hung out with each other. A lot of the blacks hung out with each other. Other, a lot of the whites hung out with each other. Uh, I wouldn't trade my upbringing to the world. I learned a lot as, as a black young man uh, in Southern California. But also, you know, when it comes to corporate America, I believe you know, our values and behaviors are fundamentals to, to America and to our culture. Uh, you know, how do you show up? You know, Chase, how do you listen? How do you communicate? How do you support one another? Is all rooted basically in what I was trying to get to is in our family core value. You know, culture is what brings our, our okay, you know, your strategy to life, basically. You know, my, my company basically grows, shifts, and evolves as our culture needs to evolve with it. And our culture needs to evolve with it. Um, it's tough, you know, because we have to change mindsets and behaviors, which is very challenging because many behaviors uh, and mindsets are ingrained in people when they're kids. And I think that's the problem we're having with America today is uh, culture transformation takes time. And it take, but it also it takes a commitment from all levels, from, from different races and from different organizations. You know, and, and as a company, how do you go about evolving employees? Um, it says a lot about your culture as a company that you want to create. I know I'm kind of diving off here, Chase, on different subjects, but no, this is great. Um, it's, you know, I just believe establishing a clear and compelling case for change 
directly will direct, directly link to uh, future success in America and to any business. No, I, I agree, and I think you know I I think what you guys said all was awesome because I think there's a a little bit of an underlying kind of like truth that comes to it, and it's it's rooted within education, being a human, right? And then also kind of taking that a step further and getting to know each other, I would say, is kind of like the key theme that I pulled from from everything that everybody's saying right here. And I, I really love it. I really appreciate it, guys. And thinking about kind of how we could turn all of this into action, right? So so I think all of it conceptually sounds fantastic. And I think a lot of people would say, like, this is great. We need to insert you know this framework into our company, and then we're just going to start progressing change, and it's going to be fantastic. But the one thing that I've always seen um, or I've always thought was that intentionality is one of the key pieces of how we're actually going to progress change. And that that comes at, like you said, at all, like all three of you guys said at all levels, because this is a a layered uh, problem that we are all going to have to attack on a daily basis. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear from you guys. How can companies turn like a perception of like them standing in solidarity with Black Lives Matter to them actually taking action? Right. And, and I'm not talking about like just donating, but like what can leaders do within their their current environments today to help show that they are really, truly like in it to win it and to be a part of this? And Simone, we're going to start with you on this one. Oh, yeah. Like I said, I have really strong opinions about this being NPR. And one of the examples I think of is um, when Johnson Johnson just recently, what is it, two weeks ago, maybe a week ago, announced they were finally making black Band-Aids. Yeah. And and I'm just like, okay, you know, this company's been around for 100, 100 years. Black people have been around for more than 100 years. And so that's where it kind of feels like a little almost, you know, you're just doing this to appease people, if you really want to change, you would have done this decades ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're only doing it now because you're, like I said, you're covering your bases because you don't want to make people upset. Are people happy? Sure. Whatever their band-aids, you know, that's on a very small scale. You know, people need to ask more about the leadership who's making up those companies, um, things like that, who are their creators. And I think the more people ask for accountability and people realize, okay, so they're not going to only take us at face value of, oh yeah, we pushed out black band-aids. They want more. Um, I think that's when you'll really start seeing change, but um, yeah, you have to ask those bigger questions. Um, You have to ask companies and tell them that you want more and not to just, you know, little changes. Um, But I think what's critical is you need to do it before it needs to be done. So don't do it now, you know, oh, well, let's do it because we don't want to get kickback of people like not buying from us or don't want to support us or things like that. Like you should have already done that. Um, And you would know that if you hired, you know, diverse groups of people. I mean, studies show the more diverse a workforce is, they're more creative, um, things like that. And so when you have a a room that looks like is homogeneous and everybody looks the same, you're not going to be that creative. You're not, your thought processes start to mesh together. Um, and until companies start realize that and taking accountability and calling out each other, um, I don't think things are really going to change. And we're going to see really like, I think very minimal changes right now. It's like, all oh, this is happening during pandemic. People are on hiring freezes. So obviously you're not going to see a diverse boardroom anytime soon when companies are like, we don't even know if we're going to be around in six months. Um, so I really think it's in about a year and things like that, when people start hiring again, people have jobs, hopefully we'll see those jobs filled, filled with different types of people. Um, 
But yeah, so for me, I think the big thing is doing it before it needs to be done and not waiting to like fan out the flames because by then it's too late, right? You're just doing it to like, you know, not get too much kickback. So um, yeah, yeah, there's- Well, and you bring up a good point too. Like we are still in the middle of a pandemic, right? And that is also something that is very key and vital to remember because like Kim said earlier and Joe said this too, like it's going to take time to progress change. It's not something that's going to happen overnight, but we also need to be even more realistic with the fact that like we're in a pandemic and there are many businesses that are also trying to save the business. Um, But what they need to do is be able to, like you were saying, put these hiring practices in place. So that way when they do get to a, you know, a full scale time where they're, you know, out of COVID, out of the pandemic and they're moving forward again and they're growing, then they need to be, hiring based off of what they're at least saying, you know, in June and, and July of 2020. Uh, right. You know, um, sorry, I didn't mean to interject, no, but it's a lot of companies, you know, are, you know, giving their employees Juneteenth off, Juneteenth off. And yes, I do think that's great. And they want to acknowledge it and they feel that that's what they should be doing. And I'm like, okay, but you have two black employees. <laughs> like, so what is that? What are you really saying? So that's why I feel like people should be asking for more, um, I have a friend that works for a company and she was like, hey, could you read this over for me? We want to make a post about, you know, supporting black lives. And it as touching as I thought that was at the same time, I'm like, you know what? She had to send this to me because she's not a single black employee. And I know that for a fact. So, you know, I had to be like, yeah, this sounds great. But then also later on, because I know she wanted to, she felt like she was making a difference, had to also bring that up. Like, you know the bigger issue is that you don't have black people in your office. You had to like come to me, which I'm happy to do. But at the same time, like, do you see where that, you know, the problem lies there? So. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, I read this article the other day and it was saying that it shouldn't be on black people to have to progress this change. Right. Right. And I think that's also something, and I'm getting a little on a tangent real quickly, but I think it's also something that a lot of people have talked about because in diversity and inclusion groups, typically, the black person is the lead of the black employee network, right? And like the Asian person and runs the Asian network and the woman runs the, the executive of net, network right. women, networking women and things of that sort. And it's like, you have to go above and beyond your day job. Whereas most people don't have to do that in order for them to just be, be right here. So it's, it's very interesting. Um, Joe, do you have, what, what's your perception on, or what, what do you think on this on how we could turn, PR into yeah. like true action within a within the company. Oh, Chase, let me get in on this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, Simone, I was ready for this one. Yeah, Simone, very strong comments. It's a great setup to this. Uh, you know, and this is one of our challenges. We're in a pandemic. We actually need our communities to say that racism is a pandemic, right? We need them to say it out loud and treat it as such. Because what I'm carefully watching our companies and individual leaders waiting for the news cycle to change and it hasn't changed, right? They, they believe this would be two or three nights of protesting. Something would change the news cycle and it hasn't. In fact, it's been layered on top, right? Uh, Aunt Jemima will retire, you know, their images and the band-aids change and the Juneteenth, right? I mean, it's one thing after another and they, they are forced to now deal with this, right? The news isn't changing. I do believe ultimately companies have to be willing to take a public stand. You know, it can no longer be, you know, one 
everyone takes a step backwards while someone stays, you know, out in front. It's that literally someone needs to take a step forward. And and we have to believe that others will follow. I'll say three things on it. One is when I think about action, you know, I think about things like I've been in touch with a couple of Congress people about uh, H.R. Bill 40 in the House of Representatives, which is a reparations bill. Now, it doesn't go all the way, but it does talk about you have to watch language, of course, in Congress. It's studying the possibility of a you know, reparations. So it's, it's a couple steps away from true action, but you have to spark curiosity to begin with. And, you know, to me, where this could and probably should ultimately lead is, no, you, you can't on value from 1868 figure out what reparations would be today. It'd be trillions of dollars. What you can do symbolically is say, hey, Black people, here is a stimulus check, Right. <laughs> You know, now we we know what the reaction would be in the white community from that. But when you spark outrage, that's when you've gone far enough, right? That's when you've crossed the threshold. So I think, you know, a public stand would be companies saying, we're going to sponsor this bill. We're going to get involved with this bill. We're going to show a genuine curiosity about this part of the history because we thought people didn't know anything about Juneteenth. Go take the term reparations to them. They'll know even less about that, mm-hmm. right? So, so I think there's a whole piece around that. And the two Congress people that are sponsoring it, I'm really going to again keep putting the gas on on about that and how I can be supportive individually. The second is around voting, and uh, you know, I can't solve everything here today. But here's what I'll say: going into 2020, 34 or 50 states have the ability for some type of absentee voting, mail-in voting to some degree before election day. That has now expanded to 45 of 50 states, uh, mostly due to, you know, concerns about long lines, the pandemic, et cetera. This is why the president is talking about fraud around mail-in voting. He knows that, that we're moving to that place and that does not bode well for his situation. I'll tell a quick, quick story inside of this. Last election, my two youngest children were voting for the first time. They were 18 and 19. Early in the day, my wife and I had voted. Uh, We then took them down that afternoon when they both got off work uh, in Austin, Texas, to have them vote. We're standing back outside the polling booth watching our children. A unique experience you don't usually have. You usually just go down and vote and leave. Everyone working in the polling area was 70 years old or older and white. That's just the community that we voted in. So here comes these two black children to go vote. And I'm watching not our children. I'm watching the people watching our children. And the visceral reaction on their face, this disdain for how and why are these two black children showing up to vote? How dare them? That was my takeaway, Chase. And I have no confidence that those votes got counted some way, somehow. The beauty of mail-in voting is it has no race on the card, right? And everyone will have to be voted. You don't know, you, you don't have a choice. You can't throw them out, right? So, so there's that. And then the last thing I'll say is if you go on LinkedIn and you, you type in diversity and inclusion leaders, back to your point earlier, and you look at all of them, of publicly traded company diversity inclusion leaders are black. (laughs) 
And 80% of that number is black women. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was talking to a white CEO recently who actually said something. It was like he opened, you know, the heavens opened when he said this. And I don't, I don't mean this disrespectfully. He just said, he said, I realized before I became a CEO and I knew I would do this when I became a CEO is that if change is going to happen. I have to do it because I have the power. Uh, getting, wow. getting a white wow. male to say that out loud when unprompted, unscripted. I mean, that's, that's a whole different level. So that, oh, yeah. That's where it's got to be, right? Public companies have to take a public stand and they have to demonstrate real, real action. And the last thing I'll say is an example of, and this is a point was brought up earlier, there is a large corporation to be unnamed, a $500 billion organization who donated $12 million to racial equality. I mean, that is like going to a homeless man and giving him crumbs and saying, I fed you. It just, it doesn't even make sense. Right. So we got to step it up. Absolutely. No, I, I really appreciate that. And the, the one thing that I do want to say about voting as well is that it's on all levels that we all have to vote, right? Like right now, a lot of people want to be heard. And, and the only way for you to be heard through at least like the government aspect of it is to vote. And that's in local elections, that's in your city elections. And that's also within the national elections as well. So like go out there and, and, and like Joe said, we have absentee voting in 45 out of the 50 states right now. There's no reason for people not to be able to vote anymore. Uh, there's, there's truly not. Um, Kim, I, let's, let's hear sorry. from you though. What, what do you think? Oh, go ahead, Simone. I that was such Go a good point. I hadn't even considered that Kim made about absentee ballots don't even have race. And I'm thinking about literally the same situation of my brother went down to our, you know, our place or polling location. They told him he couldn't vote for whatever reason. And my dad had just been there earlier, had to go down there and, you know, shake some tables and be like, what are you talking about? This is his polling location. And that is so eye opening because I hadn't even considered because everything else is like makes you put your race that when you do absentee ballots that you all of them get counted because you don't you know they have to count them. you don't know someone's race so yeah that i was just agreeing and that was new information i hadn't even considered so yeah. yeah i think it's i think it's really interesting and i mean i think you know the more that we could just be able to put down our names and less about like our gender or our race or our sexual orientation the better because it just kind of makes everything more objective because at the end of the day like a vote should be objective it should not be well the vote counting should be objective right it shouldn't be subjective and nobody should be able to grab it and say oh well this vote doesn't matter but this vote matters. Right. like that's that's corruption um right. but kim let's let's hear from you how do you think that we can start turning these these into action and really truly um embodying it within a company standpoint um well first of all i'd like to take credit for what joe said but I, I didn't. Oh. Uh, on, that, that was I know, Joe. I'm like, oh, sorry, Joe. That was Joe with the great voice. But I, you can have, you can put my name by that. Joe. Will find right. Uh, Group <laughs> um, project. Yes, right, yes, yes. We all get A's. We all get A's. Um, well, when it comes to come on with corporate America, right, Chase? Um, yeah, I mean, because because you work in sports, right, and you have a very diverse group of people that come in, come and playing all of your tournaments and your camps. Right. So I think my, my question really for you is like, how can like corporate America or even like within your own environment today, like how can this whole, like we stand in solidarity with black lives and with our black brothers and sisters turn into action and how can companies be actionable on this? Sure. 
but you, you have to listen. You, I mean, it, it may sound as simple as that, but you really, you have to listen and you have to create. Uh, top level executives need to build strategies and plans uh, to stimulate and sustain a desired culture, but they can't do that without listening to us. Because again, it goes back to what I said earlier. You know, we, we're all in our own um, little area. You know, a lot of Caucasian leaders, that's all they know. There's not too many black people or Hispanics or Asian folks that are in their circle. So when they create a culture, it's usually a culture created by their families or by how they were brought up. Um, so it starts at the top levels. They have to listen and create. They have to encourage, engage, and equip uh, their leaders. And this is what we try to do within halftime sports and within halftime health is we encourage, engage, and equip our leaders at all levels to commit and demonstrate desired behaviors. Those behaviors are created by our staff, by me, by our family. Um, you know, it, it's, it's real. I know it, it may sound simple by these words, but it's a challenge. And it's something that many leaders within corporate America, they form their mission statement based on their thoughts, their ideas, um, as opposed to finding out what others believe in their corporation. Um, again, I had mentioned earlier about, you know, changing the mindsets and behaviors. You know, that, that doesn't happen at once. You know, culture transfer, transformation, it takes time, but it also it takes a commitment. You, got, you have to be committed to it. And I, I look at, like, NASCAR. NASCAR removed the Confederate flag this year. Beautiful. I applaud them. However, why did it take until 2020 for them to remove that flag? <laughs> Right. You know, me and my wife and I debate this all the time. Okay, we applaud them for taking the action. We are now in 2020, mm -hmm. and they just decided to remove that that horrible flag from their from their overall mantra and, and all their events. It, it only it, it took, unfortunately, it took some black lives being taken for their eyes to be opened to actually have that flag removed. Well, Kim, I think to that point, if there wasn't, and this is back to what you said, Chase, just insert one black person in the room and see how things change, right? And all we had to do is put one black NASCAR driver. That's it, one, yeah. power yeah. one. If he wasn't there, the flag is still waving, right? That, yes. yeah. That's I how know. crazy this is. I completely agree with you, Joe. And it, it's, it's sad. It's sad that it took some horrific actions to take place for that flag to be removed. It's horrific that, that I have to have conversations with my kids about how they need to address police officers when they're pulled over. I tell them, you give them yes, sir. You look them in the eye. You, you don't, you don't you know, go crazy on them because I, I want my kids to come back home. So even if they were going 25, and, 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 the, and the police officer said they were doing 65, accept the ticket, move on, and we'll fight it in court. Whereas, do you think a Caucasian white family has that conversation with their children about when they're pulled over with the police? I'm sorry, I'm getting a little fired up here. Because, I, they, because they don't. <laughs> the truth, they, don't yeah. they, they don't have that conversation with their children because they don't need to. But because my kids are of color, I have to have those conversations with them because, again, as a father and as a parent, all I want is my children to come back home. 
safe. We'll 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 deal with the police officer and his his you know his his line ways whatever you know about yeah okay say you weren't you weren't going forty five you know you were going twenty five whatever we'll fight that in court. But I just want my kids to come home safe. Whereas I don't believe our our, our white counterparts have those conversations with their children. And Absolutely. That, that that bothers me a lot. Well, and, and to your guys' point, right? Like we have to start, ha- we, everybody start, has to start having these uncomfortable conversations because Kim, to your point, like those conversations about police and police brutality and making sure that you just come home, right? When you get pulled over, I'll never forget one learning from you, how to, how to interact with cops. And then also going to an all American camp, which was all nothing but black men and women. And then, or yeah, black men, it was a, all, a basketball camp uh, going into eighth grade. And one of the uh, guys there was an undercover cop, pulled us over and then taught us how to interact with cops because he was like, if I were you guys, this is how I would interact with them. You get pulled over, I would drop the keys out the car, I'd put my hands on the steering wheel. I would, you know, not, I would wait until the cop gets there and then I would tell him exactly where my wallet is and things of that sort. And it's like, by us sharing that with, our counterparts, whether it's in work, whether it's outside, um, you know, going to a bar and grabbing a drink when coronavirus is all over, um, that's going to help make things real for them. Right. And they still, it still may never become real for them because it's never a threat or a, a conversation that they've ever had. But the point being is that it's helping them get to that ground zero of the education. So that way they could say, this shit's not cool, man. Like, well, why is it set up this way? Oh, well, this is this way. And then it gets their, them very curious. It gets people very, very curious. And they start diving deeper into it. And then that's when they start forming their own opinions on it. And that's when I think that true action is going to come from it because they're going to be like, this isn't okay. Like, we're not arguing politics. We're arguing humanity right now, right? Like, I think a lot of people that are, are you know, on two sides of the spectrum, whether it's Black Lives Matter and then the other people who are like, all lives matter, one of my buddies brought this up the other day and he was like, you know, if someone shows up for the breast cancer awareness month, uh, wearing pink, does somebody wear green and go, well, testicular, uh, cancer matters. Well, you know, all cancer matters. It's like, well, that's not what we're celebrating right now. Right. Like, so why, why are we all of a sudden making this a political argument when it's not a political argument? So anyways, I got a little fired up on that one, but it does actually lead into my next question, which is this is a battle that black men and women have been fighting for a while now. Right. I mean, it's, you could tell with all of our passion within this topic right now, that this is something that we we were born into essentially. Like it's nothing that we could have, right. could have essentially changed while uh, throughout all of our time periods. But I'm, I'm curious because I do, I personally feel like this is a different um, movement here in 2020 than past civil rights movements. Now, this could feel different for me because I'm living it through it for the first time. Um, but I, I truly believe that the power of social media has, has been helping kind of amplify the awareness and the message of, of what's been going on behind it. And personally, when, when I see that there was not only 50 protests, you know, in every single state across the United States, but there's also 17 countries throughout the world that were protesting what was going on here in the States. It kind of gives me more, a little bit more optimism to say that this is at least a bigger movement and that it might have an inflection point. Um, but I'm curious to hear from you guys, like what, what do you think is the difference between here now and 2020 versus what's happened in the past? And Kim, I'm going to start off with you on this one. Okay. Great question, Chase. Uh, it's a question I've thought about quite often as well. Um, I think the biggest difference is 
I don't know the biggest difference right now, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Um, I would be able to answer that question a lot. How can I put it? I'll be able to answer it more effectively uh, in six to nine months from now. Okay. Because what happens is when we start to protest, you know, quietly or militantly, however we protest, um, these protests only last for so long. They don't have a, a, a long lifespan, so to speak. Yep. Now, if we're still protesting nine months from now, great. Because the longer we protest, the longer we are in front of the people of, of these, these uh, cultural corporate leaders, the better. I think in the past, during my generation, uh, and, and, and Joe and, and Simone, I'm much older than you two. So when I say my generation, I'm going back to when there was black and white TV. And, and, and I, I, as the kid, was the channel changer or the remote control. You know, my dad would tell me to get up and change the channel. We were also the antenna, so I'm, I'm older than, than all of you. So my generation, we would protest strong, and we would go after you know, what we believed, but then it would stop. A month or two, maybe three months down the road, it would stop. And when it stops, people, what we had done previously would fall on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. That was a problem. Because people would start, corporations would start to think about maybe making a change. But then nine, you know, three months, four months down the road, they're like, ah, now nah, we're fine. Let's, you know, everybody's quiet now. So I think right now the millennials are doing a great job in attacking and going after and, and trying to provide us with social justice and getting rid of social unjust. But it has to continue, Chase. It can't just stop when this pandemic stops or when everyone in America reopens again, you know, and, and, and our, our, our doubt, you know, the, everybody's making money again and, and just feeling good about life. You know, we've got a control of the coronavirus, the COVID-19 stuff. We can't forget what has happened in the first quarter of this year with Black Lives. So it Absolutely. has to, it, the, the, the protesting has to continue until there is evident and strong change in corporate America. Now, that may not, it, it may not be nine months from now or a year from now. So we're going to have to stand strong, fair, and strong and steadfast in everything that we believe in. It, it, it may be years, but we have to continue to do it. So I know that wasn't a direct answer to your question because, again, I think I would be able to give you a better and articulate a, a better answer to you nine months, maybe to a year down the road, because hopefully it doesn't just die down. Yeah. And, and it's like keeping up that momentum. Right. And to, to your point, you know, Microsoft put out a goal yesterday that they wanted, I believe it was 40 to 50 percent of their uh, leadership to be black um, by 2025. So it's almost like, you know, I can't answer the question right now, but let's see how they follow up in 2025 and let's hold them accountable, because if they. If they publicly state that and they're not doing it, then that's part of the problem. That's actually not helping progress anything. Um, Simone, let's let's hear from you on this one too. Uh, what do you what do you think the difference is between now and, and past civil rights movements? Um, I think for the longest time, well, I will say this. I think being younger and someone who doesn't have children, I really would like that my grandchildren and my children do not have to pick up this fight. And I think that um, we, sure, we like to think that we've come a long way, but we realize, wow, in the last, you know, 
my we celebrated my dad's 60th birthday yesterday and I turned to my sister because I found out last week I was like did you know dad's birth certificate says Negro and her face was in like shock and horror. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I made the same face because I was so naive. Like, duh, he was born in 1960. Of course it says Negro, but for me, it says black, you know? And so it's like, Oh, we think because, you know, birth certificates say different things and they don't separate our water fountains. But when we look at data that says, you know, schools are just as segregated as they were in the 60s. You know, there's still, banks are still charging us higher interest rates to home own homes. They're still redlining us. So there's so much that, sure, you know, on a smaller scale, we we thought there was change, but the more data comes out, you know, it's been, you know, 60 years since then, since 1960. And they're like, guys, guess what? They haven't done much. They just did enough to keep you quiet and keep you from being too upset. Um, so I think the biggest difference is yes, there were changes, you know, where we don't have to sit on the back of the bus and things like that. Mm-hmm. Sure. But at its core, there's still much, um, that I think black people want and, and deserve. And it's, you know, just equality. And my pastor had a good point. He said, hope is nothing without action. And so for me, you know, when I think about the past in the past and, you know, the things they did, they, you know, went to countertops and those were years like the, you know, protesting the bus. I think they said that was over a year. And so for me, I, I, I'm like, okay, what can, can I do personally to be, you know, a proponent of change and enforcing it? And, I think my difference is for me, I had a really bad experience just with law enforcement. So it brings up these fears of anxiety of being forced. I can't protest. It brings up me to a really, you know, really sad, dark place. So I'm like, okay, so what could be my action? Cause I want to be a part of this. And I'm like, okay, I can cyber bully. I'll do that all day. I'll cyber bully. I'll get you fired. (laughs) That'll be my cause because my ancestors couldn't look up where you worked, but I sure can. And I think of all those people who are like, um, you know, get caught for saying racist stuff and then they lose their job and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, da, 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 because their life had to be shifted for them to care. So um, me personally, I think since 1960, I'm like, well, my grandparents didn't have cyberbullying, but I do uh, because, you know, I don't want to get beat by police officers because I tend to be mouthy when I'm upset. Um, so I think the biggest difference is we know that there is you know, there's so much more to be done, but that we can do more and we can ask for more and we can expect more and not to be okay with the bare minimum. Now that we have more information to say, you know, our schools are still, like I said, our schools are still segregated. I think Chase Bank got popped with like a $250 million lawsuit. Don't quote me on the bank, sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, they're charging us more to own homes. And so it's stuff like that, that we can back it up and then go to them and say, we deserve and we want better from you. Um, but personally, I don't buy from brands. Um, I think they, I will say from back in my grandparents, they, I think they did a great job. And I think our protests are awesome of really keeping our dollar to ourselves until we know that companies support us. And I, you know, I don't expect that necessarily from my friends or my family, but for me personally, I will not, I try my hardest to not buy or I will not purchase or I will not support brands who aren't vocal and their disdain for racism. I'm just over it. I don't want to be having this discussion with my grandkids about, I want them to be like, whoa, that was so crazy. You know, mm-hmm. I think about 
you know, I think about like my, me being like, oh my gosh, that's so crazy about my dad having me grow on his birth certificate to my grandkids being like, oh my gosh, that's so crazy. You guys had to like be in the streets demanding, you know, accountability for the cops. And they're like, they would never think to do that now. I'm like, yes, isn't that great? So, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, yeah. <laughs> so I know that's long-winded, but I just, I feel like the biggest difference is that we know that, you know, there's more, way more to be done and that it's more than a surfer. It's deeper. So. Absolutely. So, you know, and, and one thing, one thing that you said, Simone, that I, I absolutely love and something I've been telling a lot of my friends recently is that we can all stay in our own lane while helping progress change. Right. Some of us, some of us are protesters. Some of us will be out in the streets. Um, I personally have been to two of them and had a blast every time, but also I don't believe that that's where I can make the most impact. You know what I mean? Like, I think where I can make the most impact is speaking up and having conversations with my leaders within the company that I work for and telling them, you know, this is how I'm feeling, but this is also what I think is actionable that we can do to help progress this. And I want to help. Right. And I think that if we're all like, I'm a firm believer in this, but I think if we all kind of stay in our lanes and get uncomfortable and then also make these smaller impacts, like the only way we're going to make a large impact is by adding up all the small impacts together. So I I think you're absolutely right. Right. Simone, it's like, you know, you could cyber bully all day while somebody else could be out in these in the streets protesting <laughs> and, and I could be helping, you know, progress change wherever I'm at. And Joe and Kim and we're all kind of doing our own thing, but we're still moving and grooving. And then all of a sudden we look up a year or two or three or five years later and we're like, wow, like, look at all the things that we were able to accomplish yeah. because we were able to focus and get our get our things done to help us progress this change. That's right. um, so, Joe, I would I would oh, like to ahead. clarify. I'm not just cyberbullying. Like, no, 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 no. I know that's one like, example. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, people are gonna think no, I'm just like that too, trolling. That too. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I was getting I'm these like, crazy, no. getting these crazy emails from Simone. I'm like, what, what? <laughs> just kidding. No, just no, kidding. no. I'm, very, uh, you know, specific about my cyberbullying. And I mean, like people who are executive and hold people and say dumb stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, yeah, no, you're losing your job. <laughs> we get it. We get it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Joe, Joe, what do you think is, is different between now and in the past, if you do think that there's a difference? Oh, I definitely think there's a difference. And, and the way I would characterize it, someone asked me uh, more directly, what's the difference between George Floyd and every other unarmed black man that's been killed and that we have purview to it, right? The video to, to prove it. Uh, I said, well, for me, it's that I view this as this was a crime of passion with George Floyd. Okay, and what I mean by that is when you watch crime shows and they talk about someone getting shot, that's one thing. But someone getting stabbed or someone getting strangled, that's a crime of passion, right? When it's a love triangle or the different things that go on in relationships. This, to think about, George Floyd was killed without a weapon. Mm. I mean, think about that. And not just without, not just without a gun, a baton, a a taser, but not even a chokehold. Not e- I mean, th- this was the most degrading way that he could possibly be killed with a knee on his throat. And it happened to be in the middle of the day. And it happened to be videoed by multiple people, witnessed in a, a group setting that we don't normally see. And with three other officers who uh, were complicit and in a city that's as peaceful as Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I mean... You could not draw up a worst case scenario 
of everything that happened. You know, the look on the face of the officer, his hand in his pocket, the amount of time, eight minutes and 46 seconds. I mean, the list goes on and on. There, there's not another situation that's looked like this. And I think this capturing this crime of passion is a, it's a different one. And I think it struck a chord because two things happened. One, people couldn't look away. And most importantly, people couldn't describe this one away. They couldn't say he turned and ran, uh, you, you know, and, and that's why he deserved to get shot in the back or he, he tried to resist or he, they had nothing to say, right? You, people had to face this shock head on for the first, truly the, I believe the first time ever. The second thing is I go back to, uh, situations have happened more recently. So 18 months ago, I was still living in Dallas and they had the case against Amber Geiger, white police officer who shot Botham John, black male sitting in his living room eating ice cream, but she thought it was her apartment, right? That whole thing. The most interesting thing happened post trial. If you watch this, and of course it was more personal for us being there in Dallas at the time is that when the verdict was read, Botham John's brother, younger brother who's on the, you know, kind of witness stand, walks over and gives her a hug, right? The person who has murdered her, her his brother. <laughs> and then this black judge walks from behind, you know, uh, and over to Amber Geiger and gives her a Bible and, you know, kind of consoles her. And all I've said to people is, look, flip it around. Black defendant, white brother, white judge, would that happen? Not a chance. No. Not a chance that happens in America. Never. So so I want to tie it to one of the things I said earlier. Part of the solution, and there's many of them, is getting white men who control the power to go to the middle. And on the other side, getting black people to stop acquiescing. Right? We always say, you see these examples on TV you know, of, of the black parent forgiving the assailant, you know, like right away, I forgive them. Uh-uh, this is 2020. We got to take a different approach to this thing. Because again, people are waiting for the new cycle to change. They're ready to hide behind the three dreaded words in America right now that come out of the mouth of white people. I didn't know. What is it that you don't know, right? Can we declare a day that now you do know? Right. Can we say mm -hmm. sometime in 2020, there's now a national I, I know now holiday. Right. But so that so that we can actually move to the place of taking action. And the last thing I'll share is and I appreciate this courage. I'll preface it by saying this. Someone I worked with for years. Uh, she's been great. Someone I, I consider a friend. Her husband reaches out to me and says, hey, you know, I've heard lots of great things about you. I'd like to send you a letter. I want to get your reaction to this letter. He's a white man, 44 years old. If you line them all up end to end, he'd be right in the middle, right? Fits the median profile. I think he's a good guy based on everything I've seen from a distance, right? So I'll say two quick things. He sends me the letter, six-page letter, <laughs> and I read it. And the two things that jumped out, a skim reading, before I even got into the content of it, he says, Black people should be proud. You should be proud that this country was built on your backs. He actually said that in a letter. Wow. The second wow. thing he said two, two paragraphs yeah. later is he starts talking about black, black privilege. I go, I got to read this letter and I got to respond to this letter and I've got to have <laughs> some dialogue with him. And so I read it 
I responded. I threw away my first draft because it wasn't fit for print. <laughs> you know, I, I, can't, I can't put that in the universe. You know, I, I still have some some responsibilities, some accountabilities. But when I did finally clean it up, but not take away any salient points, you know, I sent it back to him. He thanked me for it. And here's here's my punchline of this. He was genuine in this letter that he prepared. There was no malice in this. This was truly how he saw the world and where he sat. And I took it. My takeaway was, oh, my gosh, the, the divide is even greater than what I thought it is. So. So, yeah, this is this is a moment that is different than all the others. And it's also different because the letters like that. I would have never got that in the past. And so I got to take it as a gift, as offended as I was when I first read it. I got to take it as a gift. No, I think that's that's really interesting. And I think, you know, thank you guys for answering this question, because. Again, I do think we're at an inflection point and I agree with everything that you guys are saying, right? And, you know, Kim, you said it earlier. It's like we we're gonna have to wait to see how all of this kind of plays out as we're as we're still moving and grooving and we're we're pushing and keeping up the momentum because I know that the, that's just the type of people that we are, but the results are something that's that we're gonna have to be a little a little bit patient on. And um, you know, we're running a little out of time here. So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna flip this over to you guys real quickly and say if there's one thing that you might've wanted to say or mention today um, that you just didn't get to say um, yet. I would love to hear from you guys. Simone, we'll start with you and then we'll go Kim and then uh, Joe will cap us off. Um, I think for me, since I own my own business, I don't have to interact with people if I don't like them <laughs> anymore. Um, in terms of the workforce, I would really say I look back on my time in working in a corporate office and I think for me, the biggest takeaway I think people should have is like, you should really um, try to truly understand your your coworkers and form those bonds and make to make sure that they feel comfortable, like go above and beyond. Because like you said, it's not it's not always on black people like it should be on other people who make up the workforce. And I don't mean pester them, like be normal guys. You don't need to make it weird. Um, but to truly understand if they're comfortable. And for me, I always knew that I was never comfortable because the people that I would form the best bonds with were never, were always people of color in the office. Those were my first friends. And so you should be really asking why, hey, why do they always hang out with one another and do, do not feel comfortable being around us. Like, what can I do to make them feel like without being weird? Again, I keep adding this, um, that they could join us. They can interact with us more than just, you know, uh, and I guess a, a corporate professional way so that you can make those bonds and then, you know, things like that. So yeah. I think, yeah. No, I, lo I love that. I, I think that's, that's mm. super valuable. Thank you, Simone. Kim, anything that you didn't get to say today? Um, just, just want to kind of, cap off. First of all, I want to thank you, Chase, for putting this together. Joe and Simone, always great to, to hear your in, insightful uh, opinions and thoughts. Uh, I, I learned a lot just by listening to you guys this morning, so thank you. Um, I think for corporate leaders, um, this is something that, because I've owned, I'm very blessed and fortunate to have two companies, uh, but for corporate leaders, we, we have to employ deep listening truly understand the nuances of different cultures that are within our corporation um, so we can ensure every perspective is heard and considered. You know, we have to identify 
and challenge ingrained patterns of thinking and behavior. That's, I mean, it's, again, it may sound simple and it, it, I guess these words are simple, but they, I hope they're powerful and impactful. You know, we have to identify and challenge ingrained patterns. And those, that goes back to what I was saying earlier in the conversation. You know, I grew up in an area where, you know, it was well diverse, but once we walked into those different uh, homes, they had their own culture. We had to learn. We, we learned from their cultures. And I think our top CEOs and COOs and CFOs have to, they, they, they've got to listen. They have to listen. So that's, that's all I want to yeah. leave with. Is, you know, it, it, we, we have to listen. I couldn't agree more. That's like, that's step one, right? Step one, educate and listen. Step two, you got to take those and you got to move it forward just like you do everything else, right? Like you don't go to college just to get the degree. You go to college to get the degree, to use your degree as you move forward. So let's think of that in the same, in the same light. And Joe, let's, let's hear anything that you didn't uh, get to say today that you might've wanted to, to bring up. Yeah. First of all, Chase, again, this is awesome. You put this together. I mean, you know, uh, I, I believe you're a shining light of this generation. I've said it to you a thousand times and I strongly believe that. And, and Kim and Simone, I, I'm, I'm inspired by you because we are all three taking this from different dimensions. And, you know, me setting in a corporate COO role, I, I have a huge responsibility. And again, I've got a different lane to your point earlier, Chase, to, to take this forward. I will say this. Um, I think in the end, if we can get people to take two things to heart with this, one is that racism is different than politics, religion, any other topic. They're all big. They're all hard to tackle in the U.S. You put them all together, they don't equal race. And that, and we've kind of known that, and now we're seeing that. There, there'll be no greater resistance than this. But I think when, you know, racism is so American – that when you protest that people think you're protesting America. It's like, <laughs> how, how can you put these two things together? Like we've been so used to this. We almost don't recognize it as being a problem, which is of course a problem. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is, and what I was most encouraged by seeing protesters in the street, we all saw the same thing as many and more white people than black in many cities is that, if people would not just look at it as a black and white issue, but instead look at it as a racist and non-racist issue, right? Every police force, as great as some of these men and women are, they all know who the racists are in their precinct. Would you just, would you just get them out? Just give them up, right? That's all we're asking you to do. Great right? point. In corporate offices, everybody knows who the racist people are in that, on the board, on the executive team. Just give them up. Right. And, and we will move mountains uh, and we'll actually be doing work that's equal to what people are doing in the streets. So uh, that, that's what I would share. I, I really appreciate that. And Joe, you bring up one great point that I, I want to share a quick story with you guys before we end. And when I went to Europe for the first time uh, two years ago, I was in London with uh, three other friends, one black, two who were white. And we walked from, from our Airbnb through Piccadilly Circus, which is the downtown area. And we saw a bunch of cops lined up. And I, being the naive, kind of nice person that I am, I walk up to one of the cops and I was like, hey, like, what's going on? Where can we go? Where can't we go? Right. I don't want to get us in any trouble, but I also want to make sure that we steer clear of trouble. And he let us know that there was a rally between um, anti-fascist and fascist that was actually going to apex and meet right in front of us. 
And those are basically racist versus non-racist. And <laughs> that's, that's literally what it is. So we were like, wow. you know what? Can we like stand kind of by you guys? Like, cause we kind of want to see this. And he was like, oh, you Americans love watching violence. Like, sure. We'll make sure that you guys are. Protected. <laughs> so we, so we legitimately stand there and we watch these two groups of people converge. And he, the police officer looks at us and he goes, isn't it funny? It's a bunch of white people just arguing about um, racism. And I was like, and he was like very different than what I see in America. And it just, you know, going through everything that we've been going through recently, I'm like, wow, like to Joe's point, we're seeing a lot more white people than we are black people at these protests right now because they do feel compelled to help progress and move the change forward. And it was just very interesting because in England, they obviously have black people too, but there was no black people at these at the rally. It was just a bunch of people arguing because it was racist versus non-racist. And I hope that we are able to get to that same point too. Um, but anyways, thank you guys so much for joining me this morning. I mean, this was an amazing conversation and I've, I've learned a lot from you guys. I always do every single time we all have a conversation and, and I hope that you guys feel the same. So thank you again for jumping on and, and at such an early time and, and on a Friday too. So thank you guys so much. Thank, thank you. Thank, thank you. you all. Yeah, have a good one. All right, guys, I'm going to 